This is Second Look. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's News Director. I hope you're having a good Labor Day weekend. If you're on the road, do be safe and do stay tuned. We've got a review of this past week in Virginia politics coming up later in the half hour. That political landscape includes the ongoing fight in the state legislature, in the courts, and also in the court of public opinion over redistricting, and we'll have the latest on that. Also, the fall season means Friday night lights, but fewer and fewer boys are showing up to play football in high school. We'll find out why. And WMRE's Christopher Clymer Kurtz brings us the story of the singers who gather at the bedsides of those on the threshold of death. They're called the Threshold Singers. But first, Virginia is marking a painful anniversary this year, the first Africans brought to English America as slaves. Late last month in Hampton, Governor Ralph Northam gathered with the descendants of William Tucker, the first African to be born in what would become the United States. Virginia Public Radio's Pamela DeAngelo reports. Surrounding the Tucker Family Cemetery is everyday life. Modest homes in the Aberdeen Garden subdivision were built around 1937 by African-American families. Most didn't know the cluster of thick-vined woods where they hung out as kids or dumped trash was the final resting place for some of Virginia's first African-Americans. Molly Ward, former Hampton mayor and former Secretary of State for Natural Resources, was integral in bringing it back. I had an old friend in Aberdeen named William Tucker who brought me out here one afternoon to show me the cemetery. And it was overgrown, it was a mess, and I didn't know it was here. Today, it's like being in a huge room with a carpet of green surrounded by old-growth trees. There are flowers and benches to rest among the more than 100 markers. As descendant Vincent Tucker told the crowd, You have plenty of company. You will not be alone. For most African Americans, family history is an unknown. Cemeteries are key to tracing ancestry. Brett Glimpf is executive director of the Virginia Outdoors Foundation, which is giving the William Tucker 1624 Society $100,000 to preserve it. And for African American history, cemeteries are oftentimes the only written record that you have of the enslaved individuals who lived in this country. The people that are buried here represent some of the earliest arrivals to the English New World. In Virginia, institutionalized racism broke up African-American communities, preventing them from caring for and protecting their cemeteries. Governor Ralph Northam called it shameful. You know, history tends to repeat itself. And we must learn from our past history and not repeat times when there were inequities because of the color of one's skin, the religion that they practice, or the country that they come from. Descendants of William Tucker knew the story of their earliest ancestors, Antony and Isabel, who were either slaves or indentured servants at a nearby plantation. The two married, and about 1624 had a son, William Tucker. What they didn't know is they were among the first Africans to be brought to the British colony, landing in what is now Fort Monroe in 1619. 13-year-old Kenny Lively, a resident of Georgia and an avid Boy Scout, says he doesn't talk much about his family history. It doesn't come up in conversation. Since most people don't know, it's more of, I'll have to say it, and then they don't believe me. Vincent Tucker says they've learned a lot about themselves. We came down a, a tradition of entrepreneurs. I'm in the moving business, and I didn't realize that in the 1800s, my uncle 
was in the moving business. Tucker and his family want to know more, but the research is hard. When we read or come across family members, it may be listed as farming. That's a nice word to say, you work the fields as a slave. They don't say it. We do a good job on cleaning things up in the state. Still, Tucker wants to emphasize their story is one of 400 years of perseverance. We're here because of them. So our ancestors sacrificed their lives, what they had, little or great, for us to have a better life. And I think we do. Next year, Virginia will commemorate the 400-year anniversary of the first Africans brought here. From Aberdeen Gardens in Hampton, I'm Pamela D'Angelo. Across the nation and around the world, including in Stevens City, Charlottesville, and now in Harrisonburg, local choirs have formed to sing at the bedsides of people in end-of-life care, patients who are at the thresholds of life. The singers are part of Threshold Choirs, as WMRE's Christopher Clymer-Kurtz reports. It's mid-afternoon, and three Threshold singers are rehearsing in a corner of an empty dining room at a retirement home before heading upstairs to an apartment. But let's get the same starting note. Over 200 communities around the world have choirs like this, according to the Threshold Choir organization. They sing at the bedsides of people facing the end of life, quote, at the thresholds of living and dying. Their motto is kindness made audible. Local choirs are already in Stephen City and Charlottesville, but it wasn't until recently that one formed in Harrisonburg, called the Blue Ridge Threshold Choir. It has 17 members, but because the rooms where they sing are often small, they usually go in groups of three to five, said organizer Donna Heatwell. We enter the room quietly, and we all have stools that we sit on so that we are at eye level with the patient. We don't want to be in a position of power, and so we sit gathered around the bedside of this person. Their repertoire includes standard threshold choir selections and hymns, and they sing only when invited, often on short notice, and they never charge a fee. They're available to providers of hospice and palliative care and to individuals. They'll sing this fall at First Choice Hospice's Celebration of Life Service of Remembrance. Their goal is to bring comfort. To do that, they must have already come to grips with dying themselves. One of our favorite songs, actually, is Walking Each Other Home. We are all just walking each other home. It's good for us to remember that. We're all going the same way. It's, it's just a natural part of life, and uh, I hope nothing to be afraid of. The three singers here today, Mamie Mellinger, Mary Glick, and Heatwell, sang for the same resident here at Virginia Mennonite Retirement Community a week ago and were invited to come back. His name is Preston Nallen, and his wife for 58 years, Carolyn, meets us at the door. Members of their family are there, too. May we come in? Please come in. He's not doing so well. You know, a week ago he could say, is that all? Yes, he did say that. He did. You're dear to come. You know where where I'm coming? It's back down the hall. Today, back in the bedroom, he appears to be no longer conscious. Carolyn leans over his bed. 
Brass, the Threshold Choir is here to sing for you again. Good afternoon, Mr. Nowlin. Thank you for letting us come back to sing for you today. This is very sacred and holy ground to us, and we are honored to be able to sing for you and to bless you on your journey. Well, they've been an enormous blessing for our family. As we all know, hearing remains after everything else has gone. And so my hope and prayer is that they have sung him into the kingdom, and he knows that. It's, it's a wonderful ministry. It's as much of a blessing to us as it is to them. Why is that? Oh, it's, it has changed my life. I think I'm a much kinder person, much more compassionate person than I used to be. Blessings, Mr. Nowlin, to you and your family. And thank you for letting us come. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Everyone, she says, should be sung into the kingdom. Preston Nowlin died the next day. For WMRA News, I'm Christopher Clymer Kurtz. Some varsity football programs are struggling across Virginia because students aren't showing up to play the game. Virginia Public Radio's Michael Pope takes a look at the issue with high school football. Jessica Jones stands nervously at the sidelines at the Mount Vernon High School football field. Her son is the quarterback of the visiting team, the Edison Eagles. She's nervous because she doesn't want to see her son end up in the hospital. I mean, concussions just scare you to death. My son had one his sophomore year, he's a senior this year, and I do get really, really nervous about the whole concussion thing. So it's honestly, you cross your fingers the whole time your kid's out there playing at this point. The football season here in Fairfax County is alive and well, but that's not true everywhere in Virginia. In Charles City County, near Richmond, the high school started practice this year with 16 players. Over the course of the first week of practice, that dropped to eight players. By the second week, it was one or two players. Superintendent David Gaston had to cancel the season. It was very uh, much a shock, I think, to the community, as you can well imagine, because we were uh, just as shocked in, in the sense that we, we really weren't expecting to see that kind of a, of a drop in that uh, interest so fast as it did over the course of just one year. Across Virginia, several high schools are canceling their varsity football season because students just aren't showing up in the numbers they used to. And canceling a season of varsity football is not just a shock to the community. It also has some unintended consequences. Just ask Tony Lampy. After Parkview High School in Sterling canceled its football program, his son transferred to Dominion High School to play football. After the season is over, though, he wants to transfer back to Parkview to play soccer, but the rules prevent parents from moving their kids from school to school so kids can move from team to team. My son would like to have the option to finish the football season at Dominion and then return home with his friends since first grade 
and compete in whatever other sport he wishes to compete in. At this point, Lampy's not sure if the rules will let that happen. It's a sense of disappointment that's shared by Gary Cold. All three of his sons played football for Manassas Park High School, another Northern Virginia high school that's had to cancel its varsity football program because lack of interest among students. He says the school is losing an important tradition. Football is a big part of, of growing up. Uh, it's, it's more than just uh, playing sports. It teaches uh, teamwork and responsibility. Teaches a lot of life lessons, uh, you know, how to fail, how to overcome uh, adversity, and I think football does a lot of that. Back at Mount Vernon, the band is moving toward the field for halftime. Sparkle Shaw is beaming from ear to ear because her son is on the drum line, and she's really happy he's not heading out onto the field to play football after the halftime show is over. It's a big fear. Like, I didn't even let my own son. He had to choose which sport, soccer, baseball, football. And I, as a mom, was like, oh, don't do football because you don't want the concussions. But that is a shame that it's disappearing. I don't know. What are you going to do? So you sound conflicted about the whole thing. I am. I am conflicted. It is. It is. It's sad, but at the same time, as a mom, I see both sides. Over the last five years, the number of high school athletes playing football has dropped 11%. That's according to statistics published by the Virginia High School League. This year, at least three high schools have canceled their varsity football programs, and more may be on the way, because for now, the rising generation of high school students just doesn't seem to be all that interested in playing football. I'm Michael Pope. Last week, a federal court rejected a request from Virginia Republicans to delay redistricting. Republicans had requested that an October deadline be put off until the U.S. Supreme Court weighs in on the case. A three-judge panel of the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia denied the request in an order issued on Thursday. The court had ordered lawmakers back in June to redraw the state's legislative map by October 30th after it found that some districts were unconstitutionally gerrymandered. The court wrote that delaying work on a remedial plan would likely result in the 2019 elections proceeding under unconstitutional districts. It said that would cause irreparable harm to Virginia voters. Now, we'll have more on the fight over redistricting and uh, gerrymandering from Jeff Shapiro in a few minutes, and uh, he more correctly pronounces the word gerrymandering. Anyway, there's something else going on with the bigger picture behind the scenes. A heavy-hitting bipartisan group of former lawmakers wants to change the way the entire process works. The group includes Republican Ken Cuccinelli and Democrat Ward Armstrong. Along with legal experts, they plan to write and propose a new way to redistrict. Virginia Public Radio's Mallory Nopain reports. Redistricting is no easy task. There's a lot of maps, a lot of math, and a lot of legal requirements. It gets even more complicated when you throw partisan politics into the mix, like this current special session. Brian Cannon is with One Virginia 2021. We've got politicians meeting in secret, drawing maps, and then releasing them a day or so before the sessions to meet without any public comment or transparency, and we can do much better than that. One Virginia 2021 has long pushed for nonpartisan redistricting. Their latest effort is to pull together this group of experts and task them with creating a new process for Virginia. We need a process that focuses on keeping communities together and allowing them to rep- pick their representatives rather than have the representatives overlay their re-election strategies on top of these maps, because that's the part that actually makes this really complicated. The committee hopes to draft a state constitutional amendment by mid-October in time to have it in front of lawmakers next legislative session. 
In Richmond, I'm Mallory Nopain. Well, let's dive deeper now into the past week in Virginia politics with Jeff Shapiro, political columnist for the Richmond Times-Dispatch. He sat down for his usual weekly chat with Craig Carper at our partner station, WCVE. Well, Jeff, the General Assembly came back to Richmond. There was a lot of huffing and puffing and not a lot of action. Put another way, they came, they talked, they did nothing. The legislature, the House Republicans specifically, are under pressure to redraw the boundaries of 11 House districts. These majority African-American districts were thrown out in June by a federal court. The court said they were unconstitutional, unconstitutional racial gerrymandering. That is, the black voters in these districts were deliberately packed into these districts in the Richmond area, Hampton Roads, and the South Side to eliminate them as a threat to Republican incumbents and candidates in surrounding districts. Now, the Democratic minority in the House of Delegates introduced a map that it said would comply with the dictates of the trial court. But, of course, it not surprisingly did so at the expense of Republicans, creating a Democratic majority of four or five seats, depending on how one does the arithmetic. As uh, one Republican legislator put it, the Democrats were responding to Republican gerrymandering with gerrymandering of their own. Now, as we have discussed several times, the Republicans are trying to run down the clock. They've managed to maintain these disputed districts since they were adopted in 2011. There have been four elections within the boundaries of these districts, and the Republicans built up a two-to-one majority at one point. Now they are down to a single seat. They would prefer to run within these existing districts, recognizing that they are not necessarily as safe as Republicans might like them to be. But Republicans believe that since they, Republicans, drew them, they might have a better chance of building up or building back up their majority. Now, the big threat here for Republicans, of course, is the courts could end up doing what the Republicans have steadfastly refused to do so far. Trial courts set an October 30th deadline to submit new boundaries. If they are not turned over to the trial court, then the trial court will take care of it. And the trial court will act without concern for partisanship. Now, there is a wild card, and that is the United States Supreme Court. Republicans hope to convince the Supreme Court to junk this October 30th deadline and then take up a full-on appeal of the decision throwing out those 11 districts. But if not then there'll be an interesting series of parallel events, a Republican-controlled legislature redrawing legislative boundaries. At the same time, a full-on congressional election is taking place. And you would think that Republicans would be concerned that voters might see all of this as a reminder that the Republicans somehow have been playing fast and loose with the rules of representative government. And a ruling from Virginia's Democratic Attorney General Mark Herring aimed at keeping guns out of classrooms has set the stage for a political gunfight. Yes, one that will likely occur in 2019 when the legislature returns in January for its regular annual session. Of course, this is an issue that's getting a good deal of attention in large part because the Secretary of Education, the Federal Secretary of Education, Bestie DeVos, has been talking about providing federal dollars to local schools to arm teachers and then to train them in the use of firearms. The folks out in Lee County, a rural outpost in the western corner of Virginia, its school board voted to arm teachers and school employees. The attorney general, a Democrat, Mark Herring, who is in favor of gun control, issued an opinion 
carries the weight of law unless reversed by a state law or a decision by a court. But that ruling by Herring said that the local governments don't have the power to do this. And what Lee County will do next has not been decided, but it is clear that the pro-gun forces, mostly Republican, and the anti-gun forces, largely Democratic, are going to be debating this going forward in 2019, a legislative election year. Certainly an issue that will rev up the base, maybe not a problem solved, but one that may have political dividends. A reminder as well that in this closely divided the legislature, we also have a mirror of the cultural tensions that define Virginia. It is hot and sticky, and Virginia's congressional races are heating up as well. And as someone who looks as if he just stepped out of a warm bowl of uh, <laughs> jello, excuse me, a bowl of warm jello, I, I would absolutely uh, concur. The president on Thursday announced that he was going to be scrubbing a pay raise for civilian federal employees. That's about 2 million people who are expecting to see their pay packets enlarged at the start of the year. Many of these folks live in places like Northern Virginia, the Richmond suburbs, and Hampton Roads. This is not an issue for which Republicans such as Barbara Comstock in Northern Virginia, Dave Bratt here in the Richmond area, and Scott Taylor in Hampton Roads want to answer fewer than 70 days until the election. Barbara Comstock has already come out in opposition to the president's announcement. She has spent a good deal of time running from the president, as Dave Bratt has to some degree. But Scott Taylor, uh, nothing uh, from him yet on this issue. And then here in the 7th District, that Bratt-Abigail-Spanberger race, there is a great dispute unfolding over how a Republican super PAC friendly to Bratt got its mitts on a security clearance application completed by Abigail Spanberger that showed that she had worked as a teacher at a Saudi-supported Muslim academy in Northern Virginia that may have produced, ultimately, unbeknownst to her or anyone else, an al-Qaeda sympathizer or two. Thanks to Jeff Shapiro, political columnist at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Support for WMRA's News and Information Fund, which makes our award-winning coverage possible, is provided by Bib and Dolly Frazier, Les and Johnny Grady, Klein May Realty, Eugene Stoltzfus Architects, Joy Loving, Jana Tretner, Nancy Barber, Pam and Jim Huggins, an anonymous donor, and by a grant from a donor-advised fund of the Community Foundation of Harrisonburg and Rockingham County. To support local news on WMRA, go to the website, Mouseover News, then click on News and Information Fund. And be sure to click Like on Facebook at WMRA Public Radio. And follow me on Twitter at WMRA News to get the latest on our coverage. In the meantime, get a daily local news update on your smartphone every weekday morning. Subscribe to our news podcast, the WMRA Daily. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's news director and morning edition host. I'll talk to you in the morning. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday.